0: File nine of Farthest North, Volume One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sharon Riske Farthest North by Fridtjof Nansen, Volume One, Chapter Six: The Winter Night, Part One. It really looked as if we were now frozen in for good, and I did not expect to get the Fram out of the ice till we were on the other side of the pole, nearing the Atlantic Ocean autumn was already well advanced the sun stood lower in the heavens day by day and the temperature sank steadily the long night of winter was approaching that dreaded night there was nothing to be done except prepare ourselves for it and by degrees we converted our ship as well as we could into comfortable winter quarters while at the same time we took every precaution to assure her against the destructive influences of cold drift-ice, and the other forces of nature, to which it was prophesied that we must succumb. The rudder was hauled up so that it might not be destroyed by the pressure of the ice. We had intended to do the same with the screw, but as it, with its iron case, would certainly help to strengthen the stern and especially the rudder-stock, we let it remain in its place. We had a good deal of work with the engine, too each separate part was taken out oiled and laid away for the winter slide valves pistons shafts were examined and thoroughly cleaned all this was done with the very greatest care amundsen looked after that engine as if it had been his own child late and early he was down tending it lovingly and we used to tease him about it to see the defiant look come into his eyes and hear him say It's all very well for you to talk, but there's not such another engine in the world, and it would be a sin and a shame not to take good care of it. Assuredly, he left nothing undone. I do not suppose a day passed, winter or summer, all these three years, that he did not go down and caress it and do something or other for it. We cleared up in the hold to make room for a joiner's workshop down there our mechanical workshop we had in the engine-room. The smithy was at first on deck and afterwards on the ice. Tinsmith's work was done chiefly in the chart-room, shoemakers and sailmakers and various odd sorts of work in the saloon. And all these occupations were carried on with interest and activity during the rest of the expedition." THERE WAS NOTHING FROM THE MOST DELICATE INSTRUMENTS DOWN TO WOODEN SHOES AND AXE HANDLES THAT COULD NOT BE MADE ON BOARD THE FRAM. WHEN WE WERE FOUND TO BE SHORT OF SOUNDING LINE, A GRAND ROPE WALK WAS CONSTRUCTED ON THE ICE. IT PROVED TO BE A VERY PROFITABLE UNDERTAKING, AND WAS WELL PATRONIZED. PRESENTLY WE BEGAN PUTTING UP THE WINDMILL WHICH WAS TO DRIVE THE DYNAMO AND PRODUCE THE ELECTRIC LIGHT. While the ship was going the dynamo was driven by the engine, but for a long time past we had had to be contented with petroleum lamps in our dark cabins. The windmill was erected on the port side of the foredeck, between the main hatch and the rail. It took several weeks to get this important appliance into working order. As mentioned on page 72, we had also brought with us a horse mill for driving the dynamo. I had thought that it might be of service in giving us exercise whenever there was no other physical work for us. But this time never came, and so the horse-mill was never used. There was always something to occupy us, and it was not difficult to find work for each man that gave him sufficient exercise, and so much distraction that the time did not seem to him unbearably long. There was the care of the ship and rigging, "'the inspection of sails, ropes, etc., etc. "'There were provisions of all kinds to be got out from the cases down in the hold "'and handed over to the cook. "'There was ice, good, pure, fresh-water ice, "'to be found and carried to the galley to be melted for cooking, drinking, and washing water. "'Then, as already mentioned, there was always something doing in the various workshops.' Now Smith Lars had to straighten the longboat davits which had been twisted by the waves in the Kara sea. Now it was a hook, a knife, a bear trap, or something else to be forged. The tinsmith, again Smith Lars, had to solder together a great tin pail for the ice melting in the galley. The mechanician Amundsen would have an order for some instrument or other, perhaps a new current gauge. The watchmaker, Mogstad, would have a thermograph to examine and clean, or a new spring to put into a watch. The sailmaker might have an order for a quantity of dog harness. Then each man had to be his own shoemaker, make himself canvas boots with thick, warm wooden soles, according to Sverdrup's newest pattern. Presently there would come an order to mechanician Amundsen for a supply of new zinc music-sheets for the organ, these being a brand-new invention of the leader of the expedition. The electrician would have to examine and clean the accumulator batteries, which were in danger of freezing. When at last the windmill was ready, it had to be attended to, turned according to the wind, etc., and when the wind was too strong, some one had to climb up and reef the mill-sails, which was not a pleasant occupation in this winter cold, and involved much breathing on fingers and rubbing of the tip of the nose. It happened now and then, too, that the ship required to be pumped. This became less and less necessary as the water froze round her, and in the interstices on her sides. The pumps, therefore, were not touched, from December 1893 till July 1895. The only noticeable leakage during that time was in the engine room, but it was nothing of any consequence, just a few buckets of ice that had to be hewn away every month from the bottom of the ship and hoisted up. To these varied employments was presently added, as the most important of all, THE TAKING OF SCIENTIFIC OBSERVATIONS, WHICH GAVE MANY OF US CONSTANT OCCUPATION. THOSE THAT INVOLVED THE GREATEST LABOR WERE, OF COURSE, THE meteorological OBSERVATIONS, WHICH WERE TAKEN EVERY FOUR HOURS, DAY AND NIGHT, INDEED FOR A CONSIDERABLE PART OF THE TIME, EVERY TWO HOURS. THEY KEPT ONE MAN, SOMETIMES TWO, AT WORK ALL DAY. IT WAS HANSEN WHO HAD THE PRINCIPAL CHARGE OF THIS DEPARTMENT, and his regular assistant until march eighteen ninety five was johansen whose place was then taken by Nordal. the night observations were taken by whoever was on watch about every second day when the weather was clear hansen and his assistant took the astronomical observation which ascertained our position this was certainly the work which was followed with most interest by all the members of the expedition And it was not uncommon to see Hansen's cabin, while he was making his calculations, besieged with idle spectators waiting to hear the result, whether we had drifted north or south since the last observation, and how far. The state of feeling on board very much depended on these results. Hansen had also at stated periods to take observations to determine the magnetic constant in this unknown region. These were carried on at first in a tent, specially constructed for the purpose, which was soon erected on the ice, but later we built him a large snow-hut, as being both more suitable and more comfortable. For the ship's doctor there was less occupation. He looked long and vainly for patience, and at last had to give it up and in despair take to doctoring the dogs.' once a month he too had to make his scientific observations which consisted in the weighing of each man and the counting of blood corpuscles and estimating the amount of blood pigment in order to ascertain the number of red blood corpuscles and the quantity of red colouring matter hemoglobin in the blood of each this was also work that was watched with anxious interest as every man thought he could tell from the result obtained how long it would be before scurvy overtook him. Among our scientific pursuits may also be mentioned the determining of the temperature of the water and of its degree of saltness at varying depths, the collection and examination of such animals as are to be found in these northern seas, the ascertaining of the amount of electricity in the air, the observation of the formation of the ice, its growth and thickness, and of the temperature of the different layers of ice, the investigation of the currents in the water under it, etc., etc. I had the main charge of this department. There remains to be mentioned the regular observation of the Aurora Borealis, which we had a splendid opportunity of studying. After I had gone on with it for some time, Blessing undertook this part of my duties, and when I left the ship... I made over to him all the other observations that were under my charge. Not an inconsiderable item of our scientific work were the soundings and dredgings. At the greater depths it was such an undertaking that everyone had to assist, and from the way we were obliged to do it later, one sounding sometimes gave occupation for several days. One day differed very little from another on board, and the description of one is in every particular of any importance a description of all we all turned out at eight and breakfasted on hard bread both rye and wheat cheese dutch clove cheese cheddar gruyere and meost, or goat's whey cheese prepared from dry powder corned beef or corned mutton luncheon ham or chicago tinned tongue or bacon cod caviar anchovy roe, also oatmeal biscuits or English ship biscuits with orange marmalade or frame-food jelly. Three times a week we had fresh-baked bread as well, and often cake of some kind. As for our beverages, we began by having coffee and chocolate day about, but afterwards had coffee only two days a week, tea two, and chocolate three. After breakfast some men went to attend to the dogs, give them their food, which consisted of half a stock fish, or a couple of dog-biscuits each, let them loose, or do whatever else there was to do for them. The others went all to their different tasks. Each took his turn of a week in the galley, helping the cook to wash up, lay the table, and wait. The cook himself had to arrange his bill of fare for dinner immediately after breakfast, and to set about his preparations at once. Some of us would take a turn on the floe to get some fresh air and to examine the state of the ice, its pressure, etc. At one o'clock all were assembled for dinner, which generally consisted of three courses soup, meat, and dessert, or soup, fish, and meat, or fish, meat, and dessert, or sometimes only fish and meat. With the meat we always had potatoes, and either green vegetables or macaroni. I think we were all agreed that the fare was good. It would hardly have been better at home. For some of us, it would perhaps have been worse. And we looked like fatted pigs. One or two even began to cultivate a double chin and a corporation. As a rule, stories and jokes circulated at table along with the bock beer. After dinner, the smokers of our company would march off, well fed and contented, into the galley which was smoking-room, as well as kitchen, tobacco being tabooed in the cabins, except on festive occasions. Out there they had a good smoke and chat. Many a story was told, and not seldom some warm dispute arose. Afterwards came, for most of us, a short siesta. Then each went to his work again, until we were summoned to supper at six o'clock, when the regulation day's work was done." Supper was almost the same as breakfast, except the tea was always the beverage. Afterwards there was again smoking in the galley, while the saloon was transformed into a silent reading-room. Good use was made of the valuable library presented to the expedition by generous publishers and other friends. If the kind donors could have seen us away up there, sitting round the table at night with heads buried in books or collections of illustrations, and could have understood how invaluable these companions were to us, they would have felt rewarded by the knowledge that they had conferred a real boon, that they had materially assisted in making the Fram the little oasis that it was in this vast ice-desert." About half-past seven or eight, cards or other games were brought out, and we played well on into the night, seated in groups round the saloon table. One or other of us might go to the organ, and with the assistance of the crank-handle perform some of our beautiful pieces, or Johansen would bring out the accordion and play many a fine tune. His crowning efforts were O Susanna and Napoleon's March Across the Alps in an Open Boat about midnight we turned in and then the night watch was set each man went on for an hour their most trying work on watch seems to have been writing their diaries and looking out when the dogs barked for any signs of bears at hand besides this every two hours or four hours the watch had to go aloft or onto the ice to take the meteorological observations i believe i may safely say that on the whole the time passed pleasantly and imperceptibly, and that we throve in virtue of the regular habits imposed upon us. My notes from day to day will give the best idea of our life in all its monotony. They are not great events that are here recorded, but in their very bareness they give a true picture. Such and no other was our life. I shall give some quotations, direct from my diary tuesday september twenty sixth beautiful weather the sun stands much lower now it was nine degrees above the horizon at midday winter is rapidly approaching there are fourteen and a half degrees of frost this evening but we do not feel it cold today's observations unfortunately show no particular drift northwards according to them we are still in seventy eight degrees fifty minutes north latitude i wandered about over the flow towards evening nothing more wonderfully beautiful can exist than the arctic night it is dreamland painted in the imagination's most delicate tints it is color etherealized one shade melts into the other so that you cannot tell where one ends and the other begins and yet they are all there no forms it is all faint dreamy color music a far-away, long-drawn-out melody on muted strings. Is not all life's beauty high and delicate and pure like this night? Give it brighter colors, and it is no longer so beautiful. The sky is like an enormous cupola, blue at the zenith, shading down into green, and then into lilac and violet at the edges. Over the ice-fields there are cold violet-blue shadows, with lighter pink tints where a ridge here and there catches the last reflection of the vanished day. Up in the blue of the cupola shine the stars, speaking peace as they always do those unchanging friends. In the south stands a large red-yellow moon, encircled by a yellow ring and light golden clouds floating on the blue background. Presently the Aurora Boreala shakes over the vault of heaven, its veil of glittering silver, changing now to yellow, now to green, now to red. It spreads, it contracts again, in restless change. Next it breaks into waving, many folded bands of shining silver over which shoot billows of glittering rays, and then the glory vanishes." Presently it shimmers in tongues of flame over the very zenith, and then again it shoots a bright ray right up from the horizon, until the whole melts away in the moonlight, and it is as though one heard the sigh of a departing spirit. Here and there are left a few waving streamers of light, vague as a foreboding. They are the dust from the aurora's glittering cloak. But now it is growing again. NEW LIGHTNINGS SHOOT UP, AND THE ENDLESS GAME BEGINS AFRESH, AND ALL THE TIME THIS UTTER STILLNESS, IMPRESSIVE AS THE SYMPHONY OF INFINITUDE. I HAVE NEVER BEEN ABLE TO GRASP THE FACT THAT THIS EARTH WILL SOME DAY BE SPENT AND DESOLATE AND EMPTY. TO WHAT END IN THAT CASE? ALL THIS BEAUTY, WITH NOT A CREATURE TO REJOICE IN IT. NOW I BEGIN TO DIVINE IT, this is the coming earth here are beauty and death but to what purpose ah what is the purpose of all these spheres read the answer if you can in the starry blue firmament wednesday september twenty seventh gray weather and strong wind from the south southwest nordal who is cook to-day had to haul up some salt meat which rolled in a sack, had been steeping for two days in the sea. As soon as he got hold of it, he called out, horrified, that it was crawling with animals. He let go the sack and jumped away from it, the animals scattering round in every direction. They proved to be sandhoppers, or amphipodi, which had eaten their way into the meat. There were pints of them, both inside and outside of the sack." a pleasant discovery. There will be no need to starve when such food is to be had by hanging a sack in the water. Benson is the wag of the party. He is always playing some practical joke. Just now one of the men came rushing up and stood respectfully waiting for me to speak to him. It was Benson that had told him I wanted him. It won't be long before he has thought of some new trick. Thursday, September 28th. SNOWFALL WITH WIND. TODAY THE DOG'S HOUR OF RELEASE HAS COME. UNTIL NOW THEIR LIFE ON BOARD HAS BEEN REALLY A MELANCHOLY ONE. THEY HAVE BEEN TIED UP EVER SINCE WE LEFT KABAROVA. THE STORMY SEAS HAVE BROKEN OVER THEM, AND THEY HAVE BEEN ROLLED HERE AND THERE IN THE WATER ON THE DECK. THEY HAVE HALF-HANGED THEMSELVES IN THEIR LEASHES, HOWLING MISERABLY. THEY HAVE HAD THE hose PLAYED OVER THEM EVERY TIME THE DECK WAS WASHED. THEY HAVE BEEN SEASICK, In bad as in good weather, they have had to lie on the spot hard fate had chained them to, without more exercise than going backwards and forwards the length of their chains. It is thus you are treated, you splendid animals, who are to be our stay in the hour of need. When that time comes, you will, for a while at least, have the place of honor. When they were let loose, there was a perfect storm of jubilation. They rolled in the snow, washed and rubbed themselves, and rushed about the ice in wild joy, barking loudly. Our floe, a short time ago so lonesome and forlorn, was quite a cheerful sight with this sudden population. The silence of ages was broken. It was our intention after this to tie up the dogs on the ice. FRIDAY, SEPTEMBER twenty-ninth, DR. BLESSING'S BIRTHDAY in honor of which we, of course, had a fete, our first great one on board. There was a double occasion for it. Our midday observation showed us to be in latitude 79 degrees, five minutes north, so we had passed one more degree. We had no fewer than five courses at dinner, and a more than usually elaborate concert during the meal. Here follows a copy of the printed menu. From menu September twenty ninth, eighteen ninety three. Soup à la julienne avec des macaroni dumplings, potage de poisson avec des pommes de terre, pudding de Nordal, glace du Greenland, de la table bière de la Ringnes, marmalade intacta musique Music à dîner, valse Minuet de Jean-Juan de Mozart, Le Troubadour, College Hornpipe, De Litsa Rosa de Marta, Ein Flotter Studio Marsch Del Phil Farbach, Vals de Lagune de Strauss, Les Chansons du Nord du Gamla du Frisca, Ak absburg Marsh de Kral, José Carad's Polska, Wartland Wartland, Les Chansons des Chassous, le rose valse de mitra fisher's hornpipe tram valse de melochet Hemlans song a la Miserable, diamanten un perlen marche de de lustiga cruget, valse de, de lustiga crichet prière du frischutz i hope my readers will admit that this was quite a fine entertainment to be given in latitude seventy-nine degrees north but of such we had many on board the fram at still higher latitudes coffee and sweets were served after dinner and after a better supper than usual came strawberry and lemon ice alias granita and lime-juice toddy without alcohol the health of the hero of the day was first proposed in a few well-chosen words and then we drank a bumper to the seventy-ninth degree, which we were sure was only the first of many degrees to be conquered in the same way. Saturday, September 30th. I am not satisfied that the Fram's present position is a good one for the winter. The great floe on the port side to which we are moored sends out an ugly projection about midships, which might give her a bad squeeze in case of the ice-packing. We therefore began today to warp her backwards into better ice. It is by no means quick work. The comparatively open channel around us is now covered with tolerably thick ice, which has to be hewn and broken in pieces with axes, ice staves, and walrus spears. Then the capstan is manned, and we heave her through the broken floe foot by foot. The temperature this evening is 9.4 degrees Fahrenheit, Minus twelve point six degrees Celsius. A wonderful sunset. Sunday, October first. Wind from west-southwest and weather mild. We are taking a day of rest, which means eating, sleeping, smoking, and reading. Monday, October second. Warped the ship farther astern until we found a good berth for her out in the middle of the newly frozen pool. On the port side we have our big floe with a dog's camp, thirty-five black dogs tied up on the white ice. This floe turns a low and by no means threatening edge toward us. We have good low ice on the starboard, too, and between the ship and the floes we have on both sides the newly frozen surface ice, which has, in the process of warping, also got packed in under the ship's bottom, so that she lies in a good bed. As Sverdrup, Ewell, and I were sitting in the chart-room in the afternoon, splicing rope for the sounding line, Peter rushed in, shouting, A bear! A bear! And I snatched up my rifle and tore out. Where is it? There, near the tent, on the starboard side. It came right up to it, and had almost got a hold of them. And there it was, big and yellow, snuffing away at the tent-gear hansen blessing and johansen were running at the top of their speed towards the ship on to the ice i jumped and off i went broke through stumbled fell and up again the bear in the meantime had done sniffing and had probably determined that an iron spade an ice staff an axe some tent pegs and a canvas tent were too indigestible food even for a bear's stomach "'Anyhow, it was following with mighty strides in the track of the fugitives. "'It caught sight of me and stopped, astonished, as if it were thinking, "'What sort of insect can that be?' "'I went on to within easy range. "'It stood still, looking hard at me. "'At last it turned its head a little, and I gave it a ball in the neck. "'Without moving a limb, it sank slowly to the ice.' I now let loose some of the dogs to accustom them to this sort of sport, but they showed a lamentable want of interest in it, and Kvik, on whom all our hope in the matter of bear-hunting rested, bristled up and approached the dead animal very slowly and carefully, with her tail between her legs, a sorry spectacle. I must now give the story of the others who made the bear's acquaintance first. Hansen had to-day begun to set up his observatory tent a little ahead of the ship on the starboard bow. In the afternoon he got Blessing and Johansen to help him. While they were hard at work, they caught sight of a bear not far from them, just off the bow of the Fram. "'Hush! Keep quiet, in case we frighten him,' says Hansen. "'Yes, yes!' and they crouched together and look at him. "'I think I'd better try to slip on board and announce him,' says Blessing. "'I think you should!' says hansen and off steals blessing on tiptoe so as not to frighten the bear by this time bruin has seen and scented them and comes jogging along following his nose towards them hansen now began to get over his fear of startling him the bear caught sight of blessing slinking off to the ship and set after him blessing also was now much less concerned than he had been as to the bear's nerves He stopped, uncertain what to do. But a moment's reflection brought him to the conclusion that it was pleasanter to be three than one just then, and he went back to the others faster than he had gone from them. The bear followed at a good rate. Hansen did not like the look of things, and thought the time had come to try a dodge he had seen recommended in a book." He raised himself to his full height, flung his arms about, and yelled with all the power of his lungs, ably assisted by the others. But the bear came on quite undisturbed. The situation was becoming critical. Each snatched up his weapon, Hansen, an ice staff, Johansen, an axe, and, blessing, nothing. They screamed with all their strength, Bear, bear, and set off for the ship as hard as they could tear. BUT THE BEAR HELD ON HIS STEADY COURSE TO THE TENT, AND EXAMINED EVERYTHING THERE BEFORE, AS WE HAVE SEEN, HE WENT AFTER THEM. IT WAS A LEAN HE-BEAR. THE ONLY THING THAT WAS FOUND IN ITS STOMACH, WHEN IT WAS OPEN, WAS A PIECE OF PAPER WITH THE NAMES LUTKIN AND MON. THIS WAS THE WRAPPING PAPER OF A SKI-LIGHT, AND HAD BEEN LEFT BY ONE OF US SOMEWHERE ON THE ICE. "'After this day, some of the members of the expedition would hardly leave the ship "'without being armed to the teeth. "'Wednesday, October 4th. "'Northwesterly wind yesterday and to-day. "'Yesterday we had minus sixteen degrees, three degrees Fahrenheit, "'and to-day minus fourteen degrees centigrade, seven degrees Fahrenheit. "'I have worked all day at Soundings and got to about eight hundred fathoms depth.' The bottom samples consisted of a layer of gray clay four to four and a half inches thick and below that brown clay or mud. The temperature was, strangely enough, just above freezing point, plus point, plus point eighteen degrees centigrade at the bottom, and just below freezing point, minus point, minus point four degrees centigrade, 75 fathoms up. This rather disposes of the story of a shallow polar basin, and of the extreme coldness of the water of the Arctic Ocean. While we were hauling up the line in the afternoon, the ice cracked a little astern of the Fram, and the crack increased in breadth so quickly that three of us, who had to go out to save the ice-anchors, were obliged to make a bridge over it with a long board to get back to the ship again. Later in the evening there was some packing in the ice, and several new passages opened out behind this first one. THURSDAY, OCTOBER FIFTH. As I was dressing this morning just before breakfast, the mate rushed down to tell me a bear was in sight. I was soon on deck and saw him coming from the south, to the lee of us. He was still a good way off, but stopped and looked about. Presently he lay down, and Hendrickson and I started off across the ice, and were lucky enough to send a bullet into his breast at about 350 yards, just as he was moving off. We are making everything snug for the winter and for the ice pressure. This afternoon we took up the rudder. Beautiful weather, but cold, minus 18 degrees centigrade, minus minus point four degrees Fahrenheit at 8 p.m., The result of the medical inspection today was the discovery that we still have bugs on board and i do not know what we are to do we have no steam now and must fix our hopes on the cold i must confess that this discovery made me feel quite ill if bugs got into our winter furs the thing was hopeless so the next day there was a regular feast of purification according to the most rigid antiseptic prescriptions Each man had to deliver up his old clothes, every stitch of them, wash himself, and dress in new ones from top to toe. All the old clothes, fur rugs, and such things, were carefully carried up onto the deck, and kept there the whole winter. This was more than even these animals could stand, minus 53 degrees centigrade, minus 63 degrees Fahrenheit of cold proved to be too much for them and we saw no more of them as the bug is made to say in the popular rhyme put me in the boiling pot and shut me down tight but don't leave me out on a cold winter night friday october sixth cold down to eleven degrees below zero fahrenheit today we have begun to rig up the windmill the ice has been packing to the north of the from stern As the dogs will freeze if they are kept tied up and get no exercise, we let them loose this afternoon, and are going to try, if we can, leave them so. Of course they at once began to fight, and some poor creatures limped away from the battlefield scratched and torn, but otherwise great joy prevailed, they leaped and ran and rolled themselves in the snow. Brilliant Aurora in the evening." Saturday, October 7th. Still cold, with the same northerly wind we have had all these last days. I am afraid we are drifting far south now. A few days ago we were, according to the observations, in 78 degrees 47 minutes north latitude. That was 16 minutes south in less than a week. This is too much. But we must make it up again. We must get north." it means going away from home now but soon it will mean going nearer home what depth of beauty with an undercurrent of endless sadness there is in these dreamily glowing evenings the vanished sun has left its track of melancholy flame nature's music which fills all space is instinct with sorrow that all this beauty should be spread out day after day week after week year after year OVER A DEAD WORLD. WHY? SUNSETS ARE ALWAYS SAD AT HOME, TOO. THIS THOUGHT MAKES THE SIGHT SEEM DOUBLY PRECIOUS HERE, AND DOUBLY SAD. THERE IS RED BURNING BLOOD IN THE WEST AGAINST THE COLD SNOW, AND TO THINK THAT THIS IS THE SEA, STIFFENED IN CHAINS, IN DEATH, AND THAT THE SUN WILL SOON LEAVE US, AND WE SHALL BE IN THE DARK ALONE. AND THE EARTH WAS WITHOUT FORM AND VOID. Is this the sea that is to come? Sunday, October 8th. Beautiful weather. Made a snowshoe expedition westward, all the dogs following. The running was a little spoiled by the brine which soaks up through the snow from the surface of the ice, flat, newly frozen ice with older uneven blocks breaking through it. I seated myself on a snow hammock far away out, the dogs crowded round to be patted. MY EYE WANDERED OVER THE GREAT snow plain, ENDLESS AND SOLITARY. NOTHING BUT SNOW, SNOW EVERYWHERE. THE OBSERVATIONS TODAY GAVE US AN UNPLEASANT SURPRISE. WE ARE NOW DOWN IN SEVENTY-EIGHT DEGREES, THIRTY-FIVE MINUTES NORTH LATITUDE. BUT THERE IS A SIMPLE ENOUGH EXPLANATION OF THIS WHEN ONE THINKS OF ALL THE NORTHERLY AND NORTHWESTERLY WIND WE HAVE HAD LATELY, WITH OPEN WATER NOT FAR TO THE SOUTH OF US. AS SOON AS EVERYTHING IS FROZEN, WE MUST GO NORTH AGAIN, THERE CAN BE NO QUESTION OF THAT, BUT NONETHELESS the STATE OF MATTERS IS UNPLEASANT. I FIND SOME COMFORT IN THE FACT THAT WE HAVE ALSO DRIFTED A LITTLE EAST, SO THAT AT ALL EVENTS WE HAVE KEPT WITH THE WIND AND ARE NOT DRIFTING DOWN WESTWARD. MONDAY, OCTOBER ninth, I WAS FEVERISH BOTH DURING LAST NIGHT AND TODAY. GOODNESS KNOWS WHAT IS THE MEANING OF SUCH NONSENSE. When I was taking water samples in the morning, I discovered that the water-lifter suddenly stopped at the depth of a little less than eighty fathoms. It was really the bottom. So we have drifted south again to the shallow water. We let the weight lie at the bottom for a little, and saw by the line that for the moment we were drifting north. This was some small comfort, anyhow. All at once in the afternoon, as we were sitting idly chatting, A deafening noise began, and the whole ship shook. This was the first ice pressure. Everyone rushed on deck to look. The Fram behaved beautifully, as I had expected she would. On pushed the ice with steady pressure, but down under us it had to go, and we were slowly lifted up. These squeezings continued off and on all the afternoon, and were sometimes so strong that the fram was lifted several feet, but then the ice could no longer bear her, and she broke it below her. Towards evening the holes slackened again, till we lay in a good-sized piece of open water, and had hurriedly to moor her to our old floe, or we should have drifted off. There seems to be a good deal of movement in the ice here. Peter has just been telling us that he hears the dull booming of strong pressures not far off. Tuesday, October 10th. The ice continues disturbed. Wednesday, October 11th. The bad news was brought this afternoon that Job is dead, torn in pieces by the other dogs. He was found a good way from the ship, old Suggan lying watching the corpse so that no other dog could get to it. They are wretches, these dogs. No day passes without a fight. In the daytime one of us is generally at hand to stop it, but at night they seldom fail to tear and bite one of their comrades. Poor Barabbas is almost frightened out of his wits. He stays on board now and dares not venture on the ice, because he knows the other monsters would set on him. There is not a trace of chivalry about these curs when there is a fight the whole pack rush like wild beasts on the loser but is it not perhaps the law of nature that the strong and not the weak should be protected have not we human beings perhaps been trying to turn nature topsy-turvy by protecting and doing our best to keep life in all the weak the ice is restless and has pressed a good deal today again It begins with a gentle crack and moan along the side of the ship, which gradually sounds louder in every key. Now it is a high plaintive tone, now it is a grumble, now it is a snarl, and the ship gives a start-up. The noise steadily grows till it is like all the pipes of an organ. The ship trembles and shakes, and rises by fits and starts, or is sometimes gently lifted. There is a pleasant, comfortable feeling in sitting listening to all this uproar and knowing the strength of our ship. Many a one would have been crushed long ago, but outside the ice is ground against our ship's sides, the piles of broken-up floe are forced under her heavy, invulnerable hull, and we lie as if in a bed. Soon the noise begins to die down, the ship sinks into its old position again, and presently all is silent as before. In several places round us the ice is piled up, at one spot to a considerable height. Towards evening there was a slackening, and we lay again in a large open pool. Thursday, October 12th In the morning we and our floe were drifting on blue water in the middle of a large open lane, which stretched far to the north, and in the north the atmosphere at the horizon was dark and blue. As far as we could see from the crow's nest with a small field-glass, there was no end to the open water, with only single pieces of ice sticking up in it here and there. These are extraordinary changes. I wondered if we should prepare to go ahead." but they had long ago taken the machinery to pieces for the winter so that it would be a matter of time to get it ready for use again perhaps it would be best to wait a little clear weather with sunshine a beautiful inspiriting winter day but the same northerly wind took soundings and found fifty fathoms of water ninety meters we are drifting slowly southwards Towards evening, the ice packed together again with much force, but the Fram can hold her own. In the afternoon, I fished in a depth of about twenty seven fathoms fifty meters with Murray's silk net and had a good take, especially of small crustaceans, copepodi, ostracodi, amphipodi, etc., and of a little arctic worm, Spadella, that swims about in the sea. "'It is horribly difficult to manage a little fishing here. "'No sooner have you found an opening to slip your tackle through "'than it begins to close again, and you have to haul up as hard as you can "'so as not to get the line nipped and lose everything. "'It is a pity, for there are interesting hauls to be made. "'One sees phosphorescence in the water here "'whenever there is the smallest opening in the ice.' there is by no means such a scarcity of animal life as one might expect. FRIDAY, OCTOBER 13th Now we are in the very midst of what the Prophets would have had us dread so much. The ice is pressing and packing round us with a noise like thunder. It is piling itself up into long walls and heaps high enough to reach a good way up the Fram's rigging. In fact, it is trying its very utmost TO GRIND THE FRAM INTO POWDER. BUT HERE WE SIT QUITE TRANQUIL, NOT EVEN GOING UP TO LOOK AT ALL THE HURLY-BURLY, BUT JUST CHATTING AND LAUGHING AS USUAL. LAST NIGHT THERE WAS TREMENDOUS PRESSURE ROUND OUR OLD DOG-FLOW. THE ICE HAD TOWERED UP HIGHER THAN THE HIGHEST POINT OF THE FLOW AND HUSTLED DOWN UPON IT. IT HAD QUITE spoiled A WELL, WHERE WE TILL NOW HAD FOUND GOOD DRINKING WATER, FILLING IT WITH BRINE. Furthermore, it had cast itself over our stern ice-anchor, and part of the steel cable which held it, burying them so effectually that we had afterwards to cut the cable. Then it covered our planks and sledges, which stood on the ice. Before long the dogs were in danger, and the watch had to turn out all hands to save them. At last the floe split in two. This morning the ice was one scene of melancholy confusion, gleaming in the most glorious sunshine. Piled up all round us were high, steep ice walls. Strangely enough, we had lain on the very verge of the worst confusion, and had escaped with the loss of an ice-anchor, a piece of steel cable, a few planks and other bits of wood, and half of a Samoyed sledge all of which might have been saved, if we had looked after them in time. But the men have grown so indifferent to the pressure now, that they do not even go up to look, let it thunder ever so hard. They feel that the ship can stand it, and so long as that is the case, there is nothing to hurt except the ice itself. In the morning the pressure slackened again, and we were soon lying in a large piece of open water, as we did yesterday. Today, again, this stretched far away towards the northern horizon, where the same dark atmosphere indicated some extent of open water. I now gave the order to put the engine together again. They told me it could be done in a day and a half, or at most two days. We must go north and see what there is up there. I think it possible that it may be the boundary between the ice drift that Jeanette was in and the pack we are now drifting south with, or can it be land? We had kept company quite long enough with the old, now broken-up floe, so worked ourselves a little way astern after dinner as the ice was beginning to draw together. TOWARDS EVENING THE PRESSURE BEGAN AGAIN IN EARNEST, AND WAS ESPECIALLY BAD ROUND THE REMAINS OF OUR OLD FLOE, SO THAT I BELIEVE WE MAY CONGRATULATE OURSELVES ON HAVING LEFT IT. IT IS EVIDENT THAT THE PRESSURE HERE STANDS IN CONNECTION WITH, IS PERHAPS CAUSED BY, THE TIDAL WAVE. IT OCCURS WITH THE GREATEST REGULARITY. THE ICE SLACKENS TWICE AND PACKS TWICE IN TWENTY-FOUR HOURS. The pressure has happened about four, five, and six o'clock in the morning, and almost at exactly the same hour in the afternoon, and in between we have always lain for some part of the time in open water. The very great pressure just now is probably due to the spring tide. We had new moon on the ninth, which was the first day of the pressure. Then it was just after midday when we noticed it but it has been later every day, and now it is at 8 p.m. The theory of the ice pressure being caused, to a considerable extent by the tidal wave, has been advanced repeatedly by Arctic explorers. During the Fram's drifting, we had better opportunity than most of them to study this phenomenon, and our experience seems to leave no doubt that over a wide region the tide produces movement and pressure of the ice. It occurs especially at the time of the spring tides and more at new moon than at full moon during the intervening periods there was as a rule little or no trace of pressure but these tidal pressures did not occur during the whole time of our drifting we noticed them especially the first autumn while we were in the neighborhood of the open sea north of siberia and the last year when the fram was drawing near the open atlantic ocean they were less noticeable while we were in the polar basin pressure occurs here more irregularly and is mainly caused by the wind driving the ice when one pictures to oneself these enormous ice masses drifting in a certain direction suddenly meeting hindrances for example ice masses drifting from the opposite direction owing to a change of wind in some more or less distant quarter it is easy to understand the tremendous pressure that must result. Such an ice conflict is undeniably a stupendous spectacle. One feels oneself to be in the presence of titanic forces, and it is easy to understand how timid souls may be overawed and feel as if nothing could stand before it. For when the packing begins in earnest, it seems as though there could be no spot on the earth's surface left unshaken. First you hear a sound like the thundering rumble of an earthquake far away on the Great Waste. Then you hear it in several places, always coming nearer and nearer. The silent ice world re-echoes with thunders. Nature's giants are awakening to the battle. The ice cracks on every side of you and begins to pile itself up, and all of a sudden you too find yourself in the midst of the struggle. There are howlings and thunderings round you. You feel the ice trembling and hear it rumbling under your feet. There is no peace anywhere. In the semi-darkness, you can see it piling and tossing itself up into high ridges nearer and nearer you, flows ten, twelve, fifteen feet thick, broken and flung on the top of each other as if they were featherweights. They are quite near you now, and you jump away to save your life. "'but the ice splits in front of you. "'A black gulf opens and water streams up. "'You turn in another direction, "'but there through the dark "'you can just see a new ridge of moving ice blocks "'coming towards you. "'You try another direction, "'but there it is the same. "'All round there is thundering and roaring, "'as of some enormous waterfall "'with explosions like cannon salvo's. "'Still nearer you, it comes.' The flow you are standing on gets smaller and smaller. Water pours over it. There can be no escape except by scrambling over the rolling ice blocks to get to the other side of the pack. But now the disturbance begins to calm down. The noise passes on and is lost by degrees in the distance. This is what goes on away there in the north month after month and year after year the ice is split and piled up into mounds which extend in every direction if one could get a bird's-eye view of the ice-fields they would seem to be cut up into squares or meshes by a network of these packed ridges or pressure dikes as we called them because they reminded us so much of snow-covered stone dikes at home such as in many parts of the country are used to enclose fields At first sight these pressure ridges appeared to be scattered about in all possible directions, but on closer inspection I was sure that I discovered certain directions which they tended to take, and especially that they were apt to run at right angles to the course of the pressure which produced them. In the accounts of Arctic expeditions, one often reads descriptions of pressure ridges or pressure hummocks as high as fifty feet these are fairy tales the authors of such fantastic descriptions cannot have taken the trouble to measure during the whole period of our drifting and of our travels over the ice fields in the far north i only once saw a hammock of a greater height than twenty three feet unfortunately i had not the opportunity of measuring this one but i believe i may say with certainty that it was very nearly thirty feet high All the highest blocks I measured, and they were many, had a height of 18 to 23 feet, and I can maintain with certainty that the packing of sea ice to a height of over 25 feet is a very rare exception. End of file 9